who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters, Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do, talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day. Life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Yeah. Hey, we're back. Hi. Or, hey now. <laughs> yeah, we've been watching uh, reruns of the Larry Sanders show. Oh my gosh, people. If you have not seen that series, such a, it, it really kind of cured me of talk shows because it was a behind the scenes look at a talk show with Gary Shandling playing a, a talk show host named Larry Sanders. And it is just, right. Janine Garofalo got her launch on that. And um, also, what's his face? Better Call Saul. Um, um, Bob Odenkirk got his launch on that show. Yeah, good memory there. Yeah, a lot of stars were born on the Larry Sanders show. So it's true. In any case, it's good to be back. Hey, this week we actually got a voicemail from one of our listeners. Andrea had some very nice things to say, and now I'm going to play it for you. I have learned so much from the Life Writing Podcast. So much, I can't believe that this is free. There are so many times when I have stopped it and rewound it to listen to it again. Um, there are times I've been driving and I've pulled over to the side of the road and just, uh, been absolutely st- 
stunned by some of the things I hear because it speaks so much to um, what I want to accomplish as a writer. Um, sometimes it's, it's really simple tips um, that can help me. Um, and sometimes it's a something, I mean, listening to the podcasts about um, the Jordan Peele films, um, about Lovecraft Country, um, Patton Oswalt's um, <laughs> um, spot. Um, since I write monsters, I write horror. I mean, all of this stuff speaks so deeply to why I write horror. All of this speaks so deeply to a world out of balance, um, since that's what, you know, brings horror. And so the Life Writing Podcast just really has helped me see ways that I can bring my life more into balance um, while I'm writing about a world that's um, not. Anyway. I love the show. Thank you so much. Oh my God. That was so sweet. That's wonderful. She she sees us. She really, really sees us. And she feels seen. Honey, you look and you sound great. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, thank you. Well, you look and sound wonderful yourself. Why don't we? Not too bad. Not too bad. That's good to know. Not too bad. Why don't we check in and see what's been going on in our lives? This is that that is a musical representation of the excitement in my head. Oh, what are you excited about? Every day I'm just excited. I love our house. Uh-huh. I love I love my it too. office. I did an Instagram tour of my office. Anyone who follows me on Instagram, it's at Tananarivdu. You can see the little tour I gave on my office. But also feeling good. I just finished grading a bunch of midterms. My TAs at UCLA are on strike, protesting unfair wage practices. So I've been left with the grading and I finally got the midterms graded. But I'm really excited because I'm proofing a short story collection I have coming out next year called Wishing Pool and Other Stories. It's at Akashic Books, which does all those noir anthologies like Atlanta Noir just did South Central Noir. Well, they are doing my next short story collection and it's coming out April 18th. I have an official pub date. That's great. Did yeah, you excited. reach out to them or did they reach out to you? I believe I reached out to them. How did this, you choose them? I like what they do with their short. They, they have a, a big emphasis on anthologies mm-hmm. And I like their emphasis on short stories and their books do pretty dang well. I talked to the editor and publisher, Johnny Temple, and I was a believer. I just said, let's do it. And they also have an interesting profit sharing model that's different from a lot of publishers. So I said, well, let's try this and see how it feels. Great. You know, if you like, if you like working with them, maybe I'll think about it. How about it? See what I'm saying? That's how it works. So that that's good. I'm proofing it. And Orbs will be coming in and the date was announced. So yeah, I'm very excited about that. What are you what are you up to, darling? Let's see. What's going on? You know, I'm working on the fire dance tai chi class. You know, the students are at week eleven. I'm I just got finished putting in week fourteen, so I'm only running three weeks ahead. I've got to do fifty-three and maybe fifty-four of these. And so I really have to pace myself. I, I'd like to, yes. you know, just because each each lesson, each week's lesson, I want to be really special. I'm, I'm trying to build a library of my thoughts around the whole body-mind thing and trying to remember everything that was that was given to me by the teachers that I've had. And it's it's, it's a lot. So did did one of those yesterday and then edited it today. Let's see, what else is going on? I'm trying to get 
trying to get back into there, there are several different projects. One of the problems with having a bunch of different projects going at the same time and different levels of development is you can feel stretched too thin. Yes. You know, and I feel stretched pretty thin right now. And if some of those projects don't work out or they're taking forever to get there, there can be, you know, I can feel that there's something in the back of my mind that says, why should I bother being creative? You know, there's nothing that's happening here. That's just an illusion. Right. I mean, the fact is that lots of things are happening, but, you know, I have to deal with the emotions of the part of me that does creative work. There is nothing I can do directly with some of our Hollywood stuff. So there's a script that I want to work, that I'm, I'm working on based on the Kundalini equation. There is a sequel to the Street Lethal books that I want to, to work with. You know, we're pitching some graphic novels to in a couple of different places with a couple of different editors and producers. Yeah, but- if I may interject here, we yes, right and I'm sure we've talked about it in previous podcasts, but it's always nice to talk about it again. The Keeper, our latest graphic novel, which was just published in September, was named one of the 10 best graphic novels of the year by the Washington Post and was also on NPR's list of best books, both of which were completely unexpected. So how, what an exciting turn to the, the year. Well, it is. You know, it helps reinforce the sense that we're heading in the right direction. Exactly. Exactly. That we're doing lots of different things. It's like having lots of different lines and lots of different ponds, and you wait to see where you get a twitch. But one of the things, one of the metaphors that I've been using a lot like lately is the difference between cats and dogs when it comes to success. And so I'm, I'm not, I don't remember whether I said it on this show, so I'm just going to go ahead and say it now, that there are aspects of success that are like a dog. They come when you call. And that's the stuff that you can directly influence with your actions, your work, your daily discipline. Then there are other aspects of success that are more like cats. They wait until you are busy and then they come and sit in your lap. <laughs> right. So, Hollywood is a lot like a cat. And there's, you know, there's that save the cat. Well, you know, Hollywood is a lot like a cat in, that's in for that sure. sense that if you need it, if you call for it, they ain't coming. And, no. and they can smell desperation. Absolutely. And you don't want to be pitching in Hollywood if you're short on money. You know, no. what, you, what you have to do is walk into the room and be confident. Yes. A long time ago, I made the mistake of letting some people in a pitch meeting know that I was not 100% confident in what I was doing. And needless to say, that room went dead in a second. It ain't show, friend- it ain't show friendship, it's show business, baby. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so. And it's, it's trying to walk that line. You know, staying in integrity with your creativity, trying to navigate the uh, the business aspects. And a lot of people do this, oh, the music business or, or Hollywood, you know, is so corrupt. I don't see them as being any more corrupt than any other business. The trouble is that artists are leading with their heart. What you would like to believe is that you're dealing with people who care about you. And oh, you're not. <laughs> right. Well, and there are also some humble business practices like in Hollywood. I don't know how it is in the music industry, but in Hollywood, it's okay to just ghost people. That's just a part of the business practice is that you ghost people if things aren't working out or the last yeah, thing wasn't but, good. You, you know, just never hear anything again. It's like, you, what? <laughs> I know of no business where people don't complain, whether you're talking yeah. about retail or engineering, you know, think about, you know, Alp, uh, Silicon Valley, you know, Apple, people talk, oh, you know, this person, that person, these people are so terrible to work with. This industry is so terrible. I honestly think that what it is, is it's the nature of the relationship between employers and employees. Mm. And 
if if you as an employee suddenly became an employer, the employees you hired would start complaining about you. It would be just as likely that it's the nature of the dynamic creates a problem. And there are plenty of people who manage to, you know, be good, decent, honorable people in, in spite that, in spite of that. And but it but you have to search for them. You know, like who what is it that I'm prepared to offer? I also think that it's a good idea to treat people as if they are sociopaths. Not mm. that they are, mm. but you are safe with a sociopath as long as they need something from you. Oh my gosh, that is such useful advice. Treat all executives <laughs> like sociopaths. You heard it here first. I think that is a great. <laughs> Any, anyone who's worked in Hollywood can agree with that. I mean, yeah, I mean, or, not, or any, any business. A sociopath, you know, why do but... they need you? Make sure they know that they need you. You know, make sure and also make sure you can walk away. If you know that you have value, then you know that you could take that value, go someplace else and get more money. The instant you can prove you can do that, you're going to get more money. If it's the truth, you're either going to leave and go get more money or your boss is going to give you more. Darling, are you you talking about courage? Well, it is, you know, what, what. Hint, hint, this is a segue. No, we can, we can, we can segue there in the sense that if you ask why people are afraid to ask for what they feel that they're worth? Why are they afraid to look cold-bloodedly at the possibility that they might not yet be good enough, but have confidence that they can grow to be good enough? You know, now you're starting to get closer to the question of fear. Now we're opening the portal to today's topic. (laughs) Fighting fear. (laughs) You didn't know I had that one in my pocket, did you? No, I did not. I had no idea. But yeah, we want to talk about fear because fear is so devastating in people's lives, not just in their work lives, in their parenting lives, in their relationship lives. Uh, People are fearful sometimes walking down the street, depending on what's happened to them. So it is somewhat of a broad topic, but because I'm a horror writer and I really do believe the reason I do write horror is because I am using my writing as a way to process my fears. I thought it might be useful for you all to hear from us about the things we're afraid of well, and look, the ways that we think fear has hurt us. And what well, do we do about it? Look, we're the life writing broadcast is about applying the tools of writing to life. So as well as to, the tools of life to writing. So it goes beyond what writers it goes beyond the arts. It goes into just life itself. Yes. I, I hazard, you know, to think that the that the majority of our listeners are not necessarily trying to be writers, right. uh, but they're interested in writing. They're interested in the process. So, if we were to take each of those arenas separately to look into career and maybe you know business and the arts, and maybe split that into two, and then look at relationships, and then look at at physical fitness and vibrancy. We could take a look and ask ourselves, how does fear have a negative impact in these arenas? And then what can we do about that? What I'd like to do is to talk about the way fear manifests in the different arenas of our lives and then some potential answers. Because I don't like to open up a wound if I don't have a suture for you. Oh, I understand. So I'm going to offer a, a, a few solutions and then you can suit yourself. my drum crash when I need it. See, I was already, oh, I don't have it ready, but I do have this. 
so um, anyway, nanny, nanny. But in any case, so, yeah, so, let's, you know, let's get start started by talking about, about some ways that, that fear has hurt you. Let's let's kind of yeah. dig into it. Well, let me go then into I'll talk about me. into my big box of fears. I, I'm getting better, I would say, about being fearful, but from a very young age, as I've discussed in interviews, part of the motivation for the keeper was being a young child, maybe seven or eight years old, sleeping with my great-grandmother who had emphysema, hearing her oxygen machine hissing beside me, and all of these things hitting me at once. Oh, okay, you just scared the crap out of me. All right, all right, all right. she wasn't, honey, she wasn't mm-hmm. Darth Vader, okay? No. <laughs> okay, but... Luke, I am your father. Well, to me, it was as scary as Darth Vader because all these things were hitting me at once. A, here was a woman who had started out as a child just like me. Yeah who had gotten to the point where she needed something to breathe. And it was like, oh, we get old, we die. That was like, it was just sort of this clear moment of realization that mortality is real. And then it was kind of the real world concern of, wait a minute, what if she stops breathing overnight? What do I do? So I was just lying there awake and scared, both feeling that I wouldn't be able to take care of her or something went wrong. I wasn't alone in the house, but believe me, I felt very alone in that moment. But really the thing that stuck with me and has stuck with me is it's not uncommon is that fear of mortality. And I've, I think I found a pretty healthy way to deal with it because it comes across so often in my writing. You know, I mean, my father is 88 years old. So of course. I'm so afraid of losing him sometime soon. I know I'm lucky to have him this long. And when I was going to go see him for the first time after COVID, after a year and a half, I wrote a story called The Wishing Pool. Actually, it's the titular story of my upcoming collection, The Wishing Pool, which was about a woman who was about to visit her father who had, you know, who was not doing well and and she doesn't know what to expect. And basically, I can make all of my worst nightmares come true in that short story with kind of a weird evil twist. But in real life, my visit was great. In fact, I was just using the Alexa device. My sister just sent me to drop in on my dad and talk to him and see him. So I I still feel very blessed. But when those fears creep in, I, I use my fiction to address them. And that has been very helpful. There are some other things, but, but I want to talk about the, the, that one first, and we can sort of ping pong back and forth, I guess. Sure. So to be extremely clear, <clears throat> your fear of mortality is often worked out through your writing. Yes. Okay. So, you know, let me, let me put one on one. And so that's, that's a career thing. That's, well, that's not career thing. No, no, that's career my was heart space. It was, it was life. Yeah, that's a life arena. Yeah. So, I would be writing even if I weren't publishing. I like to think. Right. Yeah. So, if we're looking at that in terms of families, relationship, life, you, you, but there are a bunch of different, a, a bunch of different fears in there. One is the fear of your own mortality. Mm-hmm. One is the fear of losing someone that you love. Yes. One is fear for them, knowing that they have to be feeling very uncomfortable. Yes. Uh, so it's it's empathetic fear. Yes. And the way you dealt with it was by taking action. Mm-hmm. You, you know, going out to see your father. And writing stories that deal in in a symbolic form with the things that you care about would that would that pretty much be accurate? Yes, I would say that is accurate. And yeah. and 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 if I could just piggyback on that for a moment, I think one way that people hurt themselves when they are dealing with a fear sometimes it's more unconscious. 
Like, let's say you're you're fearful of a parent's aging, so you avoid calling them, <laughs> you right. avoid seeing them. So in, in those kinds of situations, your fear becomes sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy, because yeah. when something does happen to them, you've robbed yourself of so much interaction you could have had otherwise. And then you're going to feel guilty. Yes, all the guilt. You know, and it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of that was, you know, self-pity. You know, you're, you're afraid of your own mortality. You don't want to be around your parents and you're, because it reminds you of what you're going to lose. True. So what, what is necessary here is let's just keep talking about this a little bit in the arena of the personal, as opposed to the professional or the physical, then another thing would be what fear for our children. You know, one of the things that, that I try to make clear to Jason is that if I'm angry at him, I almost never get angry at him unless it's something that causes fear. Right. You know, because, you know, it is my position and I'm prepared to defend it at any length that anger is a mask over fear, that fear is the primary emotion. But there are lots of ways that it manifests. It yeah. Anxiety and stress and irritation and, you know, on and on and on are versions of fear. Writer's block relates to fear. There are lots Preach. of ways that, it, that it, it shows up in our lives. And when you can identify the primary emotion, then that gives you one thing to deal with. If I deal with my fear, will the other emotions go away? Do you know how much you have in common with some of your favorite celebrities, leaders, newsmakers? I'm Evelyn, the host of Reppin, where you'll meet notable people you think you know. You'll find out who they really are and what they represent. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. So, yeah. And if I could just stop you there, because yeah, some people may be asking, well, what do you mean writer's block is fear? Well, it may not seem obvious to you, person who has had writer's block or is currently experiencing writer's block. But I can tell you, as someone who is trying to write a new short story, at the same time, I'm proofing a book of finished and edited short stories. It is very intimidating to try to write with the fresh memory of everything you've written before. Or maybe in your case, dear writer, things that you have not yet published, have not yet polished. Like you're just starting on this road and you're afraid you're not good enough. You're afraid you won't either measure up to your past work or the work of writers you admire. Right? Would you agree with that, Steve? That's it, it's a very paralyzing place to be. Like well, I, the way I put it, what the way I describe writer's block, it's this: the writer's block is a confusion of two different states. One is the flow state where you are creating, and the other is the editing state where you are evaluating what you have written. And that, to the degree that the editor is always more mature and smarter than the flow party, the flow part of you is the kid part of you. The editor has read a million books. Right. You know, and studied all these classes and got these degrees and, you know, once the, the, the admiration of their peers and so forth and so on. So the little kid part of you is just saying, you know, hey, hey, let's put on a show. Let's, let's create some images. Let's tell a story. And the other part of you is saying, oh, no, that's stupid. That's, you know, that, that phrase is wrong. That, that won't word work. is wrong. That, you know, the, your, your, the grammar is off. The punctuation is off. All those voices are what stop you if you think that you have to edit at the same time that you're writing. If you did not care about the quality of your writing, you could write at any length at any time. You just, just spill it out in a, a, a just a porridge of, of, of linguistic diarrhea. So, um, yeah, it's, it leads to this kind of creative paralysis. Yes, it does. 
And, and I think that once you understand that your your core creativity is what what Stephen King refers to as the boys in the basement, it's your unconscious competence. It's your unconscious mind. So that in actuality, you you know your your technique, which works extraordinarily well, is to polish as you go. So but, you don't but, turn but, the but, page. Yes. Until you've po- until you've written until you've got that that page right. Is that correct? Yeah, that's pretty much right. And I have to just have the courage to write three or four paragraphs, five or six paragraphs, and be willing to go back and look at them and and see, oh my God, are they okay? Are they terrible? Do I need to start over again? Right. So it, it's yes, that is my method. So if we've kind of gone over to career things, so other things that. You know, if we say that, that there's a life writing six step process, you know, write a, a sentence a day, one to four short stories a month, finish and submit, don't rewrite except to editorial request, read time, times as much as you write, and repeat this process 100 times. Every one of those steps can be disrupted by fear. Mm-hmm. In terms of writing a sentence a day, there are people who are afraid that they're not going to be able to do it, and so they won't even try. And so they, what they will do is they will lie and they will say, I don't have time to write. When the truth is, I don't have time to write in the exact way I want to write, which is to sit down at my desk and have an unbroken two hours and this and this and this. Or eight hours. Or eight hours, <laughs> right. The second thing, what, one to four short stories a month. People, and my ideas don't come in short story form. You know, that's that's a fear. My, Read more short stories. Read more short stories. Come. But if you also, if you get to three and you say, finish and submit, People often don't want to finish their stories because then they have to submit them. They have to polish them, submit them. And if you submit a story, there is a risk of rejection and you're probably going to be rejected. And the fear of what that rejection means can cripple you. I have a little anecdote about that. I might have mentioned before my very first novel is called The Between and it was published in 1995, but it was written in 1992. And in between 1992 and 1995, I submitted it maybe one, two places to a contest and to a huge agent, like one of the biggest agents in New York, got rejected by both. So having been bitch slapped twice, (laughs) I put it in a drawer and I did not look at it again. I started writing my second novel, My Soul to Keep. I was, again, lying to myself, telling myself, oh, Based on these two rejections, this must not be ready. And wow, when I think of the time I wasted before I actually kicked myself in the pants and realized what I was doing to myself, it was almost like a panic attack. I I, I was writing every day, but I had this feeling that I was letting myself down. What could it be? Oh, could it be that entire ass novel sitting in your drawer that you have not sent really seriously anywhere? And I, I... I sent it to another agent who bought it like within two weeks, but a year went by between my first submission and, and my second. So how, what helped you get over the fear? How did you finally deal with it? Uh, panic attacks. It was my unconscious, basically just beating my butt. When I tried to go to sleep at night, I, during this time, I felt like maybe I needed to be on anti-anxiety medications. And there was like this nameless anxiety hanging over But how me. did you get over it? How did you get Oh, I, find, I, I don't know what brought it to consciousness, but I suddenly realized what the problem was, was that I was not being honest about my writing practice, that it wasn't enough just to write every day. I could write every day and never get published if I never submitted. So I would tell people all the time, right, submit, you know, and I wasn't doing it. I wasn't following my own 
knowledge, my own advice. And, so, and I got back in there. So you, were you ashamed of not following your own advice? Did you feel like you weren't being a good teacher? You felt like you weren't being honest to yourself? You felt no, like it was just the, the, yourself? What was I it? Wasn't, I wasn't teaching that. It was just the, the inner dishonesty that I was not pursuing writing with everything I knew I needed to. Okay. So not doing the best you could do was a conflict with your own self-image that you, that you define yourself as being a particular type of person. And when you're not that kind of person, it, you feel like you're losing yourself. It's like it, 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 the secondary thing I was talking about was you not being a good teacher. It doesn't matter whether you're teaching at that moment. You're not being a good role model. I'm not being who I am. And the fact is that that a lot of courage comes from identity, that a lot of courage comes from the sense that I am the kind of person who goes in this burning house. I'm the kind of person who charges the machine gun nest. I'm the kind of person who tells the truth, even if I've been threatened, whatever that is, your definition of who you are, if your definition of who you are is a person who is honorable and of courage and a particular kind of person, that can really help you because everybody feels the fear. That's that's one of the things that I think is critical for people to understand, that fear is a universal human experience. The question is, what do you do about your fear? What do you exactly. do with your fear? Exactly. So you used your self-image as leverage to overcome that and get into the mail. And I think- And everything I knew about what writers said about what it takes to succeed. My high school English teacher told me, yes. you have to wallpaper your wall with rejection slips. I was not doing that. Right. So I was not doing what I knew I needed to do. So in that sense, it was to not do this thing that would lead you to the destiny you wanted- was a painful process was a painful prospect that it caused you more pain to think about not achieving your dreams yes. than you were experiencing in thinking I might be rejected. Absolutely that, right. So, that was what it was. If you can imagine a balance beam and or one of the justice scales and the amount of fear you have 12 units of fear or so you have 10 units of fear on one side that weighs it down. What you have to do is put something on the other side that in terms of emotional energy, emotional weight, weighs more than the fear. That's one thing you can do. So you can say, I need to do this because I need the money. I need to do this because I want dad to be proud of me. I want my teacher to be proud of me. I want to do this because this destiny that I have is huge. This is who I want to be. This is who I wanted to be. I simply have to move through this. And all of those things work even if you can't reduce the amount of fear. You can literally create enough weight on the other side of the scale. So that's one thing that one can do for fear. I had to apply this also in another arena of my life, which during this same period, I was single, mm -hmm. desperate to find a soulmate. And I was doing in some ways the exact same thing. Oh, so. I, I was only pursuing men who were emotionally unavailable. Why do you the, think you were doing that? Because I was afraid of intimacy and commitment. Ah. So I could tell myself I was out there, I'm dating, I'm pursuing guys, but I was always most turned on. By the guys who were just a little bit standoffish, the guys who felt like 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 this one guy at work I was dating who who wouldn't even basically look at me when we were at the office. I mean, and I don't think it was just because of professionalism. I think it was that he was just kind of in his head and standoffish, and woo, that was like my thing. 
So if you were like that into girls, if you weren't, I mean, whatever it was, if you were emotionally unavailable, that was my catnip. And it was another very, very painful lesson, probably the root of many, many therapy sessions for me to get to the bottom of why that was. Well, the, you know, our, the soulmate class, you know, soulmateprocess.com, we talk about, we talk about how people are unrealistic about what they bring to the table in a relationship. And you get into the worst trouble when you're trying to attract and hold someone who is above your level of, of integration, above your level of energy, that if you can be realistic about that, then you have at least two choices. Two or below choices. it in their case. <laughs> huh? Or below your level. Well, in terms of not even looking for a relationship. Or below your level. Attract, being attracted to the wrong kind of person is yes. a, different, a different issue. Oh, okay. We're not, you know, they're not below your level. They're on a different path. They're simply not compatible. They're a different tribe. That's, exactly. that's, not, that's not what's going to work. But if you know that, you know, if I'm some guy who's underemployed or unemployed and overweight and, you know, and depressive, and I'd like to date, you know, some gorgeous supermodel, I can do one of a couple different things. One, I could use that motivation to, to get myself out of my funk and get myself back on the horse and starting to to work with myself, starting to improve myself again. Or I could love myself right where I am and decide to find someone who's on my path, you know, who's 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 moving at about my speed, you know, in in my way. You know, in my own life when my first marriage broke up, I went into a deep depression and it felt like I had nothing to offer the world. And the idea of of wanting a partner, you know, I could feel that I was likely to make some real mistake. And because I simply did not feel worthy of the kind of woman that I knew I was attracted to. And so one of the things that is very useful is that I act I literally thought to myself, I don't know who I am at this point in my life, but I do know what I'm attracted to. So by defining very clearly the kind of woman I was attracted to, and then determining what kind of man that woman would have been had she been born a man, or what kind of man might that woman be attracted to, or would that woman be attracted to, I got a very clear sense of, oh, this is who I'm supposed to be. This is who I am. And I, and that realization helped to jar me out of my doldrums. If I am attracted to this and I'm willing to do the work to get it, it's very similar to you know asking yourself, what does it take to become a writer? What does it take to become a black belt? What does it take to you know get a driver's license? There's a, a finite amount of work it takes. Once you understand what that is, you then can say, am I willing to do it? So the fear then is that you can't do it. The fear is that if you look closely and tell the truth, I want this money, I want this publication, I want this person, or I want this kind of person. That if you admit that, you then have to deal with the fact that you cannot have that, as opposed to someone who has the confidence that, to say, I may not be able to do that now, but I can learn. I have confidence that I can learn. That confidence then allows you to say, yeah, it would cost me this much to have this career, but I'm going to go for it anyway. 
because you have to believe that you could have it. Speaking of which, Rosebud, speaking of which, I'm wondering if there are times where you have faced fear in Hollywood where it held you back and what did you do to overcome it? Well, my first my first script that was ever filmed in Hollywood was for an episode of The Twilight Zone. It was called Teacher's Aid. Starred Adrienne Barbeau from Maud. I I wrote the first draft and polished it and turned it in. It was for a 20-minute script. And they loved it. They absolutely loved it. They said it was the best first draft script they'd ever seen. Would I expand it to a 30-minute script? I froze. I yeah. could not do it. Because right. the person trying to do it was not the same as the person who had written it. The, the, the writing came from that unconscious competence deep part of me. But the person who sat across the desk from Phil Daguerre and Jim Crocker, you know, and they said, hey, this is great. Make it longer. Froze. And I literally could not do it. And that was, you know, it wasn't a total disaster. But on an emotional level, it certainly felt like one. Oh, my gosh. Was it? There was nothing I could do for that script. All I could do was, over time, learn what processes made it possible to bring forth the best work. So if I'm if I don't feel like I can do it, if I don't feel like I can create something as good as that, what I do know is the processes I need to go through in order to see whether or not I'm right that I can't do it. I also have been through the entire process of creativity long enough to know that there is a dark night of the soul, that there is going to be a point at which the fear boils over and you feel like nothing you do is going to be good enough. And once you recognize that, you don't take it as seriously. It's it's the, oh, I'm here again. I'm feeling fear again. I'm so, I'm feeling doubt again. I'm questioning myself again. So let me ask you this. This wasn't your was this your, you said this was your first Twilight Zone? That's right. It was the first thing I ever ever got produced for television. Holy cow. Well, there's a whole bunch of pressure on that yeah. project. This is, I mean, first of Lifetime all. Lifetime dream. And from my all-time favorite television show, Twilight Zone. What? So, so that's huge And Harlan pressure. Ellison was working, was, was a story editor on there, and I worshipped Harlan. Oh, boy. So you had all this pressure on you. Yeah. Probably what people would call now some imposter syndrome. Like, what am I even doing here? You know, or, I, I, I don't remember imposter syndrome. I, although undoubtedly the component elements were there, it, it was the, I can't do it. It was just, it was just the blank page. I just couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of different things combined there. Now, what I know is because I understand the process, it, it's a little bit like in the movie, The Mask of Zorro, you know, Antonio Banderas and Anthony Hopkins. They, there is a Spanish circle and there is a, a complex there's a circle with a bunch of complex geometric shapes within it. And the, the, this, the Spanish circle allows you to calculate where you are in relationship to your opponent, what angle, what distance, and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. And part of that is tactical and strategic. In other words, you, know, you want to be at this position. Okay? But part of that, I am convinced, is to give, is to give the swordsman something to concentrate on other than I'm about to be stabbed. That that if you're thinking about mathematics, if you if you if your brain is 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 thinking about angles and distances, what it's not thinking about is swords cutting your flesh. 
which would cause you to freeze, which would mm. increase the odds of getting stabbed. So mm. the best way to not get stabbed is to not worry about getting stabbed and instead focus your mind on what there is to be done, which is control of angles and distance. Now, in writing, a project can be horrible, big, overwhelming. And, and if you do it right, it might change your life. So what can you focus on? If you think about that stuff, you'll freeze. So oh, my you gosh, on, yes. Me, huh? Yes, absolutely. You'll freeze. There's so, what I mean, focus so much at stake. Is, is structure, is research, is process. I need to write five pages today. Let me just take a look at this one scene. What ha- what could happen in this scene that would be really interesting? You know, you, let me just plan out the book or the script. I don't have to write anything on it today. And that leads to the sort of low hanging fruit. Yeah, I knew you were going to. I get notes. <laughs> Uh, yes, I knew you were going to say low-hanging fruit because yeah, that low-hanging fruit. phrase comes up so often when we're on at a script. I panic. Yeah, I can feel me. I can feel my guts just churning. What if I can't do it? It's the same thing as what happened with Twilight Zone. So what I do is I'll read through the notes one day. The next day I'll read through the notes and put notes on the manuscript at places where I think those notes might be addressed. The next day after that I might go through the manuscript and just fix little things. And every time I'm doing that, my unconscious mind is is chewing over the script, is chewing over the notes, is chewing over the possible answers. And every time I go back to it, as long as I've had a good night's sleep, I find that I have answers to a few of those questions. And after a while, what looks what looked like the Rock of Gibraltar breaks down into units that are small enough. That I can see how to do this. I think, it takes time, and, yeah. and the panic and the fear are still there. So you focus on the intellectual aspects, the strategic aspects, so that the emotional stuff does not overwhelm you. Um, we know very established showrunners who feel great anxiety at various stages of the project. So on, on some level, you're absolutely right. There are ways that fear never goes away. Yeah. But the advantage that veterans have is that they have worked through it again and again and again so that they know it's kind of like in my novel, My Soul to Keep, there's a dream that the little girl Kira has where she's talking to her grandfather uh, about a dragon, right? There's a, So the dragon in this novel represents something big and terrible, but Kira realizes she can run right through its legs. So it looks scary from a distance, but in reality, she's small enough to get right past it. And I think that that is a visual metaphor for how we can look at the things that scare us. They're this big, scary dragon, but if you just keep walking toward it, it turns into smoke, right? Oh, it turned out (laughs) there was really nothing there at all, but what we imagined was a very fearsome thing. So yeah. Well, yeah. I, mean, I think that what you're saying is that oftentimes, you know, the fear, the problem isn't fear as much as the problem is being afraid of the fear. Yes. You know, it's the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Well, I mean, you know, it's been said, honey, I hate to tell you that it has actually been said before. It's the notion that, that the thing that you're afraid of is a problem, but you, what you need to do is not add to that problem. With, right. with anxiety and, and lack of clarity and lying to yourself about the fact that you're afraid or not remembering the fact that you've been afraid of many things in your life and you managed to overcome them. That, you know, one teacher told me in relationship to, to my fear in a particular context that my problem was not fear. It was lack of clarity and that the search for clarity then, well, what is true? You know, it is true that I'm afraid. 
Why am I afraid? What does it mean? Is this Does fear mean that I can't do it? That seeking clarity is one of the things that really works. And, and it's it's one of the things that, we just, that we've talked about. I've done courses in the past, and I've, I've lectured on this and taught techniques that deal with that. And clarity can be of enormous value because, you know, people will say, I don't care about money. And then they will complain about things that can be solved, problems that can be solved with money. So clearly, they're not being honest. So what is going on with this person? Do they feel like they can't make money? So they want to pretend that it doesn't matter so they don't hurt? You know, what's going on? I don't, I don't care about, I don't want a relationship. And then they care about, then they complain about being lonely. Mm. You know, the, to look directly at your fear gives you courage because you realize I've got fear here. As, as one of one of my friends, uh, Sean Nixon, you know, was advising me about an arena of fear concerning martial arts, that you have to simply learn to recognize the fear and say, oh, fear is here again. I am feeling fear. When you can do that, when you can tell the truth, I am afraid, as opposed to I'm angry, I'm this, I'm that. If you can just say, I am afraid, it takes a lot of the power out of it. You're looking at the thing itself rather than its disguises, its masks. Yeah. And that's why I feel really grateful that I learned at a very young age to try to, for lack of a better term, kind of weaponize my fear or at least power myself with my fear by becoming conscious of it. Oh, I'm going to see dad. I'm worried about how much he will have changed in a year and a half. Being present with that fear is difficult. So that's the first thing to recognize that the fear is there and then use the tools at hand. My most reliable one being my fiction, not that my head is in the sand, not that I'm going to avoid him while I disappear into a world of fiction, but to use the writing of a short story to help, as my my aunt likes to say, put on my big girl panties you know, and get ready for that visit. Whatever works, do it. You know, if the meaning of life is to be joyful and of service, then it doesn't matter what you do. What matters is you do something that enables you to accomplish the things you need to accomplish. So, so one of the things is, you know, you, you drain some of the energy away by writing stories. Another is you ask yourself, what do you fear more? Seeing your dad in a deteriorated state or not seeing your dad and suffering the pain of regret when he passes, inevitably. Exactly. Um, you could go deeper than that into the question of what are you really afraid of? Are you afraid that your father is slipping away? Or are you afraid that you're going to follow the same path? I think that unresolved fear of our own mortality is often manifests as those sorts of things. I know that dealing with my mother and my father's death, in both instances, I needed to be as clear as possible about what was really going on here. Why was I really having these feelings? What was this event? And the clearer I was, the less power it had. So what I want people to do is to take a look at the three major arenas of their life, their, their business career aspect, their physical being, their relationships, and ask if, if you if you were operating at peak efficiency and you did not let fear stop you, what would be true in these arenas? And then say, this is what I want, and then begin to gather the resources necessary to make to accomplish those things. Use your fears to show you where you need to grow. 
You know, I, it, it, to a certain degree, there are things about these broadcasts that we plan, but most of it is very similar to the conversations that you and I have, you know, over the road. Just how do we help our son? How do we communicate better with each other? How do we become better writers? You know, how do we become better people, healthier people? And I, I've gave up my career in Hollywood twice for my family. I hope to God I don't have to do it again because I'm running no. out of time. No, no, no. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> I not. I don't have another 10 years to give That's away. going to happen. You know, to invest, to invest. It's really funny that behind you I can see the kitty cat Crawling in, crawling in. What did we say about what cats do? They wait until you're busy doing yes, something. Yes, absolutely. Show up. Um, <laughs> so it's wonderful when when listeners seem to get the wavelength, what it is that we're trying to accomplish. You know, we often talk about and the most important thing is probably the relationship. You know, that that whether it's your relationship with yourself, your own creative self. Our, our relationship with each other, our relationship with various people in Hollywood and so forth, our relationship with our son. You know, if you know what's primary, your relationship to your own heart is primary, then with your family, okay? If you know that that's the most important thing, then the question becomes one of how can I be the best writer I can be while also taking care of myself and taking care of my family? I'm not willing to sacrifice my my own integrity, my sanity, or my family. I'm just not willing to do that. So how do you do that? And And Tanana you just gave a clue earlier. How do you do that? You take the things that you're afraid of and you put them in your fiction. Yes. You take the, the, the conflicts that come up in the process of life, if you're paying attention, will be all the creative, will spur all the creativity you could possibly need. But you have to be honest about what you're afraid of, what you're hungry for, what you love. Then you integrate that into your writing because other people are afraid of the same things, or hungry for the same things, love the same things. You're not, you're not unique. You know, we we all have these things in common. So I think that that the illusion is that you can ignore these things and your life will be better. The truth is that stuff will lay for you in the dark and wait for you to turn your back, and then it'll jump on you when you least expect it, like a cat. Exactly. Um, that that powering. Your writing means acknowledging your emotions. Right. And if you clamp down on those emotions, if you suppress those emotions, guess what you're doing to your creative flow? You're also suppressing your creative flow. You're writing off the surface when you could be writing deeply. And it's the deep writing that is not only the most satisfying, but ultimately, I believe, usually the most successful. I agree that I would rather be too emotional in my writing than insufficiently emotional. Right. That, you know, and emotion is a trigger to action. If I'm feeling emotion and I can find a way to convey that in my work so that someone on the other side feels an emotion, they will take an action. They will have a feeling, you know, I will motivate them to do something, even if it's only by my next book. But hopefully, I think that that we try to share a perspective on the world that we believe if someone understood what I just learned, their lives would be better. And you're not saying you're better than them. You're saying that the way that the human race moves forward is people sharing what they observe about life. 
Absolutely. And that experience piece is so critical. I mean, so many, like so much of the shyness I've had earlier in my career in Hollywood or, 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 you know, I, you know, you say you get to a certain age and you just don't give a damn anymore that not give a damn is a form of courage because you're not creating imaginary obstacles for the thing that you want to do. You're not creating imaginary reasons that this person that you want to talk to will reject you. It's just like, If they do, they do. Whatever. It's like, okay, that's their problem. I'm amazing. So they just lost an opportunity to talk to me. Well, you know, that's the thing, you know, going back to, you know, the soulmate thing. If you honestly believe that if you are a member of the opposite sex or the same sex, depending on what it is that you're looking for, you would be attracted to you, then you're going to have confidence. And if you love yourself enough to be okay when you're alone, then you're not going to be desperate. And desperate and lack of desperation, that that self confidence is incredibly attractive to and healthy we, people. To so healthy each of people. us, met, yes, we met each other while we were on our way to being who it is that we are. Neither of us. It was we were not looking for another person. We were looking to deepen our connection to ourselves. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that that is that is essential. And it's the understanding that, you know, I don't think it's too much to say that that's the secret of the soulmate process is to learn who you really are and to learn to amplify that and deepen that and project that in such a way that other people start noticing you, at which point you have the chance of of attracting somebody who is on your wavelength. What you, right. That's what you're looking for. It's somebody on your wavelength who's going the same direction you're going at the same speed you're going and who is available. You know, and so it's the soulmate process is about prepare is about the mating instinct. It's not pickup lines. No, and it's not dating sites. We don't know nothing about that. I don't, I don't know anything <laughs> about that stuff. And I have no pickup lines. I've never, I never, you know, went into a bar and picked up a woman in my life. Right. So, it was always a matter of getting to know people and getting but, letting them get to know me. It is about recognizing your own patterns. It's about knowing what you want. And who you want to be to attract that person you want. And it's a five-week digital download course that you take at your own pace at www.soulmateprocess.com. It's not just for people who are looking for a relationship, who are single. It's also for people who are in a relationship who want to make it even better. And if you if you can't tell that one of the great treasures of my life is being in relationship with Tanana Reeve, then I have totally missed the mark because... It is a, a pearl beyond price. I noticed I didn't say that she is a pearl beyond price, although she is. It's our love, what we're creating together, the family we're creating together. And it's not that we don't argue and have problems. That's that's just part of life. I yes. argue with myself. How in the hell am I not going to argue with my, with my wife? But the love is always there. And there's never been a moment that it wasn't. No. It- I would – if you if you're a writer – well – it doesn't matter whether you're a writer in this particular sense. One of the most important things you can do to succeed at anything is to have the right partner. Somebody who, even if they're not another writer, who is supportive of who you are, who does not undercut who you are. And if you can support them, they support you and you you move together through life. That is so essential that it, I I wish I could give this knowledge to everyone and I just want you to understand that, that what it is that we're doing with, with the soulmate class is so close to our hearts. Yes, it's it is. Totally close to our hearts. Absolutely. It's it's everything we've learned after nearly 25 years of marriage. Most of that time we've spent collaborating. So yes. uh, check out www.soulmateprocess.com. Thanks again 
to Andrea for sending us such a beautiful, great beautiful voicemail. When I first uh, heard voicemail. it, it made my day. So glad that the Life Writing Podcast has found a home with you. So please review us, tell your friends, have a great week, and we'll see you next time. And bye just bye. remember, always be the hero or heroine in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.